you could sit here and be like, why me? But it is you. So how are you going to get through it? Because I mean, like it, it's you, it, this hit you. So why not you? Like, this is you. It's not a straight line. I'm Jordan Harding and welcome to the podcast. We're about to learn how people like you and I overcome career setbacks, pivot, reinvent themselves, and find work that aligns with their top strengths. Let's dig in together as we learn how these incredible people become the best version of themselves. On today's episode of It's Not a Straight Line, we have Laura Brown with us. Laura is the multi-million dollar sales girl, mom, breast cancer survivor, and two-time Ironman. She's worked with MLSE since 2003 as a leader in the executive suite sales team. Born in South Africa, Laura has been through more setbacks and triumphs than I can imagine In 2016, she was diagnosed with breast cancer, and 16 months after that, she crossed the finish line and became an Ironman. Her energy, passion, and attitude has inspired me and so many. She's an honorary vice chair of Northern Pass, benefiting the Princess Margaret Cancer Center. And I also hear she's a collector of hats, heels, and wine. Laura, welcome to the show. <laughs> correct, correct, correct. Hi, thanks for having me. <laughs> Amazing. It's, it's a pleasure to have you this morning and thanks for taking the time. You know, Laura, if we go back to, you know, when you were in university or college, I believe you went to York. If you look at your career in life, you know, what potential did you see for yourself back then? Um, I went to York. I was in the kinesiology program. So at the time, I wanted to do something science-y, so physio or occupational therapy, something along those lines. And then as I got, as like the years went on and I hated science more and more, I decided to um, join the sport administration program at York. So it's a certificate that goes along with your degree. And through that, you learn all about the business side of sport. Um, always been a sports fan. And then through that program, you have to do volunteer hours. So to make a long story short, and I'm not going to age myself here. Uh, many years ago, the hockey draft was held in Toronto at the Air Canada Centre at the time. And I volunteered that day. And that was the moment that I wanted to work in professional sports. So lucky for me, I spent the day with this incredible girl, Stacy. And I'll tell you about her a little bit later on. She comes back into my life. So Stacy and I worked together that entire weekend. And then I actually became her intern at Maple Leaf Sports. And that's how I got in. And I just haven't left. So did you always like have a passion that you wanted to work in the sports business? Yes. So, you know, growing up in Toronto, I loved the Blue Jays growing up, um, the Toronto Maple Leafs. And then obviously when the Raptors came, became a Raptors fan. And it's just working that day and volunteering for the hockey draft and seeing just the buzz around the building and the tears of the parents. And like, it was just so exciting. And I knew that this is that working in professional sports was, was what I wanted to do. So Maple Leaf Sports and Entertainment, when MLSC comes up, it's where everybody, you know, wants to, especially in Canada, wants to work. So how do you describe your 
I think it's 16 years. And for those listeners, Laura's not that old, even though she says she's going to hate yourself. Uh, you're young, but, but how do you, uh, how do you speak about your, your time at Maple Leaf Sports and Entertainment? Um, so when I started, I was on the service side. So managing our season ticket members, and then I dabbled a little in sales and then went on a few mat leaves and came back. Um, I started the premium team. So our team focused specifically on Raptor Quartzides and Leaf Platinum accounts. And then I took a, a break when I had cancer and, or sorry, went on another mat leave after that and came back and was really interested in sales again. And since um, 2011, I've, for the, well, I guess 10 years now, I've been in the suites department. So selling suites, so game day rentals. So if you want to book a suite, for a Leafs or a Raptors game, everything funnels through me. Um, it's super fun. It's kind of like we're given our budget every year, and then we're we're myself and my manager are responsible for two big teams, like multi million dollar budgets. It's just really high paced and so much fun, and it's it's like I love it every day. And so as an intern, we used to have a saying like you you hire for attitude and you train you train for skill. So as long as you have a great attitude and you're willing to do anything, we'll, we'll hire you. Well, potentially, um, there's a lot of applicants that come through every year, but when it was a lot smaller, that's kind of like the interns used to just get hired after their internship. But I, yeah, I, it's fair. It's, I, I love it. And, and my favorite part about the job, the championships were like, obviously the Raptor run was so much fun and the games are fun, but really it comes down to our, the people you work with every day. They become family. And um, I've made some lifelong friends. And that's, that's what I miss, like being in COVID, is, is the culture. And I miss just being in the office and laughing every day and hanging out with friends. Like that's essentially what it is all day long. It's the best. And it's it's quite a grueling long hours when you're in those playoff runs. Can you just tell what's what's that like? So so as I said, I work in the suites department. So when it's playoffs, we don't obviously know the playoff schedule, and so it's very fast paced. So you make it past round one, you kind of have the potential games for round two, and you're kind of selling ahead, but as much as you can, I guess, because you don't know what like what's coming up. For us, weekday games are way busier than weekend games because of all the hosting and the the, the corporate crew that comes through the building. Um, so during playoffs, like we make it past round one and then we're like holding our fingers and squeezing everything we have to make sure that those games fall on the weekday games. Um, those are best scenarios for us. But it's just very fast paced. Suites are very expensive. So you're only hitting a certain group. And then it's important we have to sell them out because you don't want to have like a round two playoff game and then with with empty boxes in the building. So it's just com- like long days and long nights and a lot of hosting, which is also one of my favorite parts of the job, constant during the playoffs. So I've missed that. <laughs> you you miss that energy rush, I yeah, assume, right? Absolutely. And- and how do you guys communicate? Like if, if you've sold one and your colleagues got another one, like is are you guys just constantly communicating via email or text or do you have another system that tells each other when one's sold out? Um, well, during regular, like sort of pre-COVID, it's just two of us who manage all our inventory. So we have an online ticketing system that you could kind of see what's there. 
we are we're we're both very visual, so we have this big giant like we call it the matrix where we have all our vacant suites for all the open games, and then we just kind of like plug in who's in the suites, so we keep track of everyone coming through the building. Yeah, and then right now, like we're all on group texts and WhatsApp groups, and it's just constant communication all day. Even if it's sending memes and like just being silly, constantly. <laughs> <laughs> and and Laura, with with sweets, so are sweets and boxes the same thing? Yeah, it's the same thing. We call it executive suites. It sounds fancier than a box, but it's essentially it's the same thing. And. Is it up to you and your colleague? Are you guys coming up with the pricing? Because I assume the pricing can change from game to game, season to season. Or is there a finance revenue team that's helping come up with those pricing models? Um, so for regular tickets, there is a BI team um, that works and does the regular tickets um, because our tickets are dynamically priced. So for hockey, let's say regular tickets, a Saturday night Montreal game is more expensive than a Tuesday Buffalo but suites is a little bit different because our weekday games are way more, in, in way more high demand than the weekend. So we tend to price the weekday games higher, but it's up to myself and my manager, Seb, we, we price uh, on the suites. We're lucky because we could price it how we want. So we're kind of given our big number and then we break it down. Um, and then it goes up based on demand. So if the suites are selling out for a certain game, one year, it was really funny. This, there was this game. It was like a Wednesday, I don't know, Islanders, I'd say, when they weren't that good. And it was selling out. And we're like, what is going on in the city? So we found out there was a produce convention. So all like the fruits and vegetables com- companies were trying to buy sweets. So then like, oh, we're like, okay, they're all coming in from, you know, so we made it like a little bit more expensive. So it just depends on on the demand of the game and, and the demand of our sweets. How do you guys connect and meet your potential client? Uh, like, how, how do you do that? And how have you been keeping up with them during COVID? Great question. So with the rental business, it's a lot of renewal. So you're, you're you know, you, you, like you meet a client, like Princess, like Princess Margaret books a suite, and then you do everything you can to make them book another suite next year or two suites, right? So we do a lot of hosting. So on nights where we have a vacant suite here and there, I try and do it two or three times a month. I will host and I invite clients I don't know or clients that I've met a hundred times or clients that have spent X amount of dollars and we bring them and a guest to the suite for for a game. We also focus heavily on um, assistance because that's uh, a president of a company books a suite, but his assistant does all the work for him. Mm-hmm. And, and so we host her because she usually doesn't get to come to the games. So we host her and they have the best time. So it's just a lot of like customer service, I guess. Service is my background. So bringing that over to the sales side and making sure that we do everything we can so they come back and spend more money the next year. Yeah, that's so smart because I've always, you know, dealing doing what what I do, you're dealing a lot with the executive assistants and they're they're powerful in what they can do. So hosting them is brilliant. I've never Yeah, you should you should call me. Call hit me up, I'll hook you up. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. And Um, we also we all two years ago, right before COVID hit actually, um, I took a bunch of clients who spend over six figures on just rental suites. 
And I was able to fly them to New York. And we went to a game at MSG to watch the Leafs. And for me, that's, that was a complete bucket list trip. I, it was my first time at MSG. And it's just, I don't know, it's in being in sports, like that's the mecca of sports. Um, so a few clients, like the good, good ones, we do take on road trips also. So, yeah. That's sweet. <laughs> I, I've never been to MSG. I've got to get there. I have been to Yankee Stadium. That was amazing. Yeah. Um, did you always think like a lot of people are like, ah, sales, I don't I don't really want to work in sales. And, you know, a lot of people do end up going down the sales path. Your energy seems to, you know, be related to working in a career in sales. Did you think you wanted to be in this space? Um, to be honest, I did dabble in. Okay. So when I started, I did service and then I went to season tickets. So when you're selling season tickets in 2005 and the Raptors were not good and where, you know, you're pumping out, like, come see the Lakers play or come see the Clippers play, or you're selling other teams to come to the Raptors games. And it wasn't, it wasn't easy at all. And I did not like it, but then later off, you know, a few years went by and I'm like, okay, I've had enough of service. And went back into sales to give it one more try. And I like fell in love with it. And it's, you know, we we sell a product that people want, like rental suite. People want, people call us. They want to come to our games. Yes. And and then it's like managing the relationship and, and bringing the service side back into it. So I think the older you get, the easier it gets, I think. Like when I was in my early 20s and sort of shy. And I always tell the newer people who come into Maple Leaf Sports, it's like you can't teach life experience, but life experience helps you become that much better of a salesperson. So I'll talk about this if you want later on, but like going through cancer and then coming back into a sales role is a whole other ball game because it's not that I don't care, but like, it's just, I, I don't care having the harder conversations or asking for money. It's just your whole life perspective changes and made it a lot easier. Yeah, that, that's great. And I, I would like to get into that. So, you know, Tony Robbins and other people say that life changes in a moment, right? It's a popular quote. And, you know, I'd love for you to tell us about what was that moment that changed in your life in 2016? And, and what's your story? We'll go a little bit earlier. So October 2015, I actually uh, left my husband of 11 years. Um, just wasn't happy. He's a great guy. We're super close now, kind of better off as friends. Mm -hmm. And as a divorce present to myself, I booked summer. So I was a runner before, like I did marathons. Uh, I've run Boston, Chicago, like some pretty cool ones. And as a divorce present to myself, I booked a trip and to run the Paris Marathon, which is my favorite city. Uh, the following April, so six months later. And then uh, to make a long story short, my coworkers were like, we'll see if there's any other marathons around that time. So we found this, we spent the whole afternoon <laughs> in the office. Uh, and I found out that the Rome marathon was a week later. So Sunday, Sunday. So I went to Europe by myself and I ran Paris, went to Florence in the middle and had like carb loading. And then I ran, and then I did the Rome marathon the week after. And I came home and I wasn't feeling well. So it was like worse than pregnancy tiredness, worse than any other like physical exhaustion. I, I just didn't know what was wrong. And everyone, like some good friends of mine were, were like, you know, you just ran two marathons. You know, you're kind of dumb. 
just let your body recover from that and, you know, mixed in with the jet lag. And then also that year, the Raptors were in the Eastern Conference Finals. So again, it's like day after day and selling and hosting and long days at work. But I knew that there was something wrong. And so a few weeks go by. So that was April. So kind of end of May, um, I was still feeling crappy. And I never do breast exams ever. Uh, I don't know. I just thought I was too young. I thought that was something you did maybe when you turned 50. And I decided to to do one out of the blue. And I was in the shower and I found a lump on my right breast. So kind of it was small. Luckily, it was like a pea-sized lump on my right breast. And I went to see my family doctor two days later. And I saw her write ASAP on the referral form. And I saw I knew it was it was not a joke. But I was happy to find like the thing that was wrong with me. It was it's amazing how your body tells you like there's something there's something off and as a runner or athlete you you kind of you know and you're hypersensitive to that so I was first referred to North York General Hospital because mm-hmm. I, I live like north of this a little bit north of the city and um, I had a mammogram ultrasound and biopsy within an hour and so I, 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 like, I knew it wasn't good. And two days later, the sur- my surgeon called to tell me that it was breast cancer. So now we're like a little bit into June, end of June. And then two weeks later, I had the lump removed. And then it, I was at, at that point when they started talking oncology and, and oncologists, I asked to be switched to Princess Margaret, um, to Dr. Bedard, who actually treated two people that I know. Um, so that's how I got into Princess Margaret. Wow. And, and Laura, you've, you had no family history of cancer. Is that correct? Yeah. So no family history of breast cancer. I had an uncle who passed away from lymphoma about 12 years ago, uh, 15 or so years ago, but no breast cancer. My great grandmother had it at 95, but that, you know, when they do the genetic stuff, it was, it's too far removed and at, and especially at at that age, so I was actually the first. And my mom tested negative for the BRCA gene years ago, um, and then I also tested negative for the gene. So it's just uh, just something that that happened. And do you mind sharing how old were you when this diagnosis came? Yeah, I was thirty seven. Right, I was thirty. Yeah, thirty seven. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's all a blur. Uh, yeah, I was thirty seven at the time. Yeah. And this podcast, it's all about how you can only connect the dots of life in your career, you know, looking back as opposed to looking forward. And this was obviously something you, you never thought would, would hit you at that age. No, never. And like, I did everything right. I don't eat red meat. I've never smoked in my life. I I'm like, I'm a runner. So you think you do everything right. And then you're like, boom. So it came as a complete shock. So when you get that diagnosis or when you saw ASAP, how quickly, because you've developed this incredible mindset that I've, I've heard you speak about, but how quickly did you develop your, your attitude and mindset of how you were going to approach this diagnosis? So I have a sister who suffers from mental illness and she's anorexia, bulimia, the whole nine yards. Yes. So my parents have had to deal with that for the past, I don't know, 15 to 20 years. So when I was diagnosed, I'm like, oh crap, like how do I tell my parents like I'm 
I have the problem now. And I think that was one of the hardest things for me to do. And then I said to them, you know what? Focus on her. Don't worry. Like, I've got this. And I learned very quickly. A good friend of mine taught me that, like, you could sit here and be like, why me? But it is you. So how are you going to get through it? Because, I mean, like, it, it's you. This hit you. So why not you? Like, this is you. And so I learned quickly at, you know, it's very easy to, there's two paths to take down or two, two paths to go down. Sorry. When you have a cancer diagnosis and you could go and get sucked into a dark hole or you could like do everything you can and, and just go in there with a positive attitude. I mean, lucky for me, it was an early diagnosis. I can't imagine if it like, it could have been different had it gone another way, but I, but I was like, okay, I, I, I got this. And I'm very lucky. I'm I'm very good group of girlfriends who were, so supportive and even like my ex-husband his entire family were like like I'm very lucky I have a great support system who was there every step of the way and it's incredible like you you had to go through learning how to be a single mom and you run these two marathons in Paris and Rome and then you come back and you've got this diagnosis and it's during when the Raptors were in the Eastern Conference final I can't believe it would probably feel like life's just moving at the fastest pace for you. Why didn't you sit there and say, you know what, this sucks. I've, uh, you know, I've trained, I've been a runner my whole life. I eat well, I'm in good shape. I I don't deserve this. Like, you know, you could have easily gone down that path. Yeah, but then I also, okay, so then, I don't know, maybe it's just me. It takes a lot to actually bench me I'm, I don't I love that it takes yeah. a lot to bench me that's it beautiful. really takes <laughs> so my whole thing through this was like okay like I'm gonna run and do what I do and like no one's gonna stop me unless I really can't so every single doctor's appointment I was like yeah like yo can I run or like how long after surgery can I you know your lumps removed and everything's bandaged and lymph nodes are scraped and okay well when can I run Cause that's the one thing that like, it kept me sane and mentally like just, okay, something to look forward to every day. And I didn't want to take, I actually took five months off of work when I started chemo because you can't get sick and Air Canada Center or Scotiabank Arena, or it was Air Canada Center at the time. It's a very like, you touch the wrong door cause the wrong fan hit the wrong, like, and you're sick, you go down. So I, I stayed away from that building for five months, which was very difficult. It was hard to do. And was it hard for you to approach the conversation with your employer? Like I've heard you say MLSE was extremely good about it, but do you have any advice for anyone out there that might be going through um, a diagnosis and then has to be open and vulnerable with people around them? So I went to our HR department who was so great. And she was like, yes, whatever, absolutely. We're here for you, whatever you need. And then at the time, my manager, who was different to the one now, his mom actually passed away from breast cancer. So uh, I think a two, two years before I was diagnosed, like it was kind of, cl- it was close. And so I had a hard time telling him because it's like, oh, here we go again. Um, and he was the one who said to me, you need to take time away. You need to like not come into the office. So it, they were unbelievable. And then I let him sort of tell the rest of the department because it was a very, 
at the time, like very early, it was very, it was hard to tell people. Certain people I told, certain people I just sent a text message to, but I let him sort of tell everyone at work. Yeah, yeah, I can I can't even imagine how how difficult it was to to tell people and I it, what what about your kids because you had a few young kids at the time like did did they know and were they rallying through this with you? Um okay, so we decided it was my ex-husband and I we did this together. So we decided to tell them when I wanted to tell them. And so I I was diagnosed 6 months after I got divorced. And then kids learned in school about Terry Fox, who had cancer, and he died. Yes. So it, I didn't want to put that kind of stress onto them until we kind of knew what was going on. And when I did chemotherapy, I actually didn't lose my hair because I did scalp cooling. I was the first patient at Princess Margaret to do it. It's a whole company from London. Um, wow. It's actually not available right now, but they're bringing it back. And hopefully one day it will be available to everybody. So what it does, you wear a cap on your head and it freezes your hair follicles. So your hair doesn't fall out. And so my kids, so I didn't lose my hair. So I had 12 rounds of chemo and did not lose my hair. Like a little bit fell out. It got thinner, but I, you, I would walk around and you would never know what I was going through. And because, I, because of that, we decided not to tell them. And I think we told them only about two years later. Wow. Yeah. So because of my divorce, I picked to have chemo on days. They're never with me on a Thursday. And so mm -hmm. I had, it was chemo Thursdays. So they never saw me. And then when I dropped, and they were little. So when I dropped them off at school, they didn't know I was going to where I was going. If I was coming home to sleep or to the hospital or to my office, like they have no idea. Right. Yeah. So yeah. It was, we tried to keep life as normal and everyone knew not to talk about it in front of them. Um, and then we told them about two years later. And and what about so you kept going to your doctors and and you're a runner. So what are they telling you about what you can do to be physically active? Because I assume for you that's just part of your lifestyle, and that's how you stay in mentally great form. Uh, yeah. So after, you know, during every single appointment, I would ask them, when can I run or what can I do? And for the most part, they were like, yeah, you know, do whatever you can. And if you feel crappy, stop. They didn't care. So before I started chemo and you kind of, when you go to Princess Margaret, you kind of meet your whole team. And on the first encounter with my radiologist, who's a brilliant woman, I'll leave her name out of this. Um, she said to me, you know, I'm not a runner. I don't understand runners, but maybe you should just walk because cancer patients don't have a lot of energy. And I left her office and I'm like, no, 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 no. We're going to do an Ironman. So that was like a whole, like that moment was a pivotal change for me. Um, and she kind of changed the course of everything. And, and as someone who ran a few marathons did you always have this dream of i'm gonna run an iron man or did this dream come about as you were going through the initial stages of cancer treatment so iron man it's um it's a very expensive sport you first you have to buy a bike yes um, and all the thingies that go along with it it's like your first iron man will cost you at least ten thousand dollars like with the training and the food and like it's expensive and it's something that i wanted to do maybe if I was 37 when I was diagnosed, so like, okay, so like in my 40s, I'll do an Ironman. 
uh, when my kids are a little bit older because it's also a lot of training. So I left her office that day and I'm like, well, why wait? Like, let's just do it now. And I want to end this with a bang and I want to be not normal and have crazy written all over my chart. I want all the doctors to know. And so this is what I'm going to do. And there's not a lot of research behind being so physical, uh, like physically active and, and cancer treatments. And so I think that, um, so I, so when I was in, so I, like, I didn't start training until I was done my treatments. So if I started chemo in August, I would run or do spin classes every day. So I was building a base. Okay. And then, so I would make my chemo appointments in the afternoon. So in the mornings I would go do a spin class and then walk into princess Margaret, like, okay, let's go. Or I would run. So uh, often I would run to the hospital with my aunt. My aunt's also a runner. So we would okay. run together to my appointments we ran to chemo. We ran to radiation a few times. <laughs> it's just kind of what we do. And I just refused to sit still. I, and because of how active I was, I didn't have that many side effects from chemo. Like on days that I didn't feel great, I just kind of, oh, like I pushed through it. And it just kept me going. And so when did you like ramp up the training for the Ironman that you were full on into it? How, how long after, you know, okay, so, did your treatment end or were you right into it? Um, I kept a good base. Mm-hmm. Um, I did the Scotiabank. So I started chemo in August and it ended in November. Okay. So it was uh, 12 weeks. In October, I did uh, the Scotiabank half marathon. So I did it. Three days after my ninth round of chemo, I felt great and I signed up and like, okay, let's go. And I didn't, my parents were horrified. So I promised them I wouldn't wear a watch. Okay. Because <laughs> so if you wear your Garmin watch, you you know your time. And then you, in, for me, I become like psycho. Like I have to beat this or be here at X, Y, Z. or So I didn't wear a watch. And I, but, and I finished it. And t- that was like the greatest run of my life. Like I'll never, ever forget that. Um. And I had an, so that was Sunday, the next two, like two days later, I had an appointment with my oncologist. He's like, so how are you feeling? I'm like, yeah, I ran a half marathon on Sunday. He's like, get out of here. Um, <laughs> so I, yeah, so I, so I built my base during treatment and then started radiation in December and it ended January the 4th or so. And that's when I started Ironman training. And then when did you, when, when were you poised to run it and where was the Ironman? So I signed up in, um, it was October 7th, 2017 in a small little lake town called, um, in, in Maryland. So it, it was a two hour drive from Baltimore, Philadelphia. It's kind of like the lake town for that little area. And, uh, yeah, it's, I chose that course because it's, it's a close drive from the city. It's a pain in the ass to fly with a bike. And um, it was completely flat, which was nice. It has its moments, but most of the, like, it, it, it was good. It was close to home. So my parents could come as well. Um, so started training for that in January. And then it, it was October. You're like, you need a good 10 months for an Ironman to train and for those that don't know, what what does training look like when you're doing it? Like, how often do you have to do workouts? So you're working out nine to eleven or more workouts a week. So you're 
it's every day or sometimes usually twice um, between the swimming, biking and running. So you're swimming like three, four times a week. You're riding almost every day and then running like three or four times a week as well. And then a little bit of strength training in the middle. So it's a lot. It's, 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 it's every day. So a lot, like when my kids were little, it was like they were six and eight at the time. So I can't just leave them alone and go for a run, but there's a gym in my condo. So I would take them upstairs with me and like they had Wi-Fi there. So iPads for the win. Here you go. <laughs> or <laughs> I would put them to bed and then go on and start riding at nine o'clock at night. So it's a commitment. You have to want to do it and you have to be, you have to do the work. So 16 months after your diagnosis, is that, is that right that you completed it? And what, what was it like to be there running your first Ironman? What was that experience like and what feelings went through you? It was amazing. So an Ironman, it's a 3.8 kilometer swim. And then you get out of the lake and you run, you're on your bike for 180 kilometers. And then you're done with that. And then you run a full marathon. So it's, it's, it sounds ridiculous. Anyways, um, I my parents were there, which was amazing. And I had three girlfriends also drove uh, flew down to watch me. So they would pop up on certain parts of the course. And it was just, it was so much fun, like seeing them throughout the day. But then I'll never forget. So the swim starts early in the morning. So you kind of get into the water as the sun is rising. And the sun was rising and I'm swimming. And I'm like, okay, so this is pretty cool. Like I just, I just had cancer and it, it was like a surreal moment. And then crossing the finish line was just like a whole bag of emotions. You run down like a red carpet and then they, they say like, they call your name out and they say, you are an Ironman. And it was just something that like you wait the entire day to hear. It was so, it was so cool. That's extraordinary. Like running an Ironman or competing in an Ironman itself is extraordinary. And be able to do it after you've gone through cancer uh, is, is, yeah, is something only a few people can can probably in this world say they've done. You know, since since then, have you have you gone on to do another Ironman, or have you have you? How have you challenged yourself physically since then? Have you done anything else? I've done uh, okay. So right before that, that full Ironman, I actually did a a half in the August before my full, just to kind of test the waters. So I got in my car and I drove six hours to Michigan on my own. Did my Ironman, got in the car and drove home. Um, <laughs> that's just who I am. Like if I want to do something, I will do it. So then I turning forty. And I wanted to do an Ironman in Europe. So I actually booked Ironman France because I love France. Yes. Um, but then the Raptors went to the finals and it was just the tri- that was the Ironman was supposed to be two weeks after they actually won. And I, I couldn't. So I, I deferred it and I went to Italy instead. So in 2019, I guess right before the whole COVID nonsense, I went and I did Ironman Italy. It was unbelievable. Like imagine, so you, like <laughs> like here you you ride on the four hundred one, and it's like Bayview, Young, Leslie, right? But when you or like Ajax, Pickering, like okay. But when you ride on the highway in Italy, it's like you see an exit to Rome, and then you ride in like Florence. Like it's just 
it was unbelievable. And you're riding in like these little like picture, like Nona sitting on her like balcony with her tomatoes. Like that's what you saw. Like whatever you think Italy is, like you, you go through these little towns on your bike. It was unbelievable. That's One incredible. Well, I'm half Italy. Italian. So I, I've been there a few times and, and I love Italy. So I can just envision it in my mind. Laura, you sound like you're you're the type of person that's like you don't make excuses for yourself at all. Have you always had that attitude or did you develop that over time? Um, I kind of I've always been like this. Like you 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 want something like go and get it kind of thing. Um, but especially with this, I just didn't want to like be sucked down that hole. I hated when people like my, the worst nightmare of, of being a cancer patient is when people treat you like, like you're just a victim and they're like, Oh my God, are you okay? And they do a little head tilt. Like that's my nightmare. Uh, I want, I went to visit the office once and this girl saw me, she's like, Oh my God, you're here. And like tilted her head. And I'm like, yes, I'm not dead. It's just, I just didn't want anyone to feel sorry for me because it's just not who I am. And so I just did, I wanted to do things and I did it my way, <laughs> right or wrong. You you definitely did it your way. Do you know, uh, do you follow David Goggins? I do. Yeah. You, you sound like you, you, you have a lot of similarities. I like him a lot. <laughs> Um, what about in, so what do you do to keep yourself during COVID all also you're, you're very physical, but is there anything from a mental standpoint you do? Like, do you meditate, do you journal anything you do to keep yourself in that top performance kind of, uh, so I do none of that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I can't sit still like yoga. So I, I get frustrated. So it's funny because you could train 15 weeks around a marathon. You could train for 10 months and do an Ironman. But yoga is like a lifelong. There's no like finish line and participation badge. So it just I, I can't like I and I I can't like I can't do a headstand. I can't touch my toes. It just I, it's just not for me. Like I like to be physical and run around. Um, so I don't journal or meditate, but I'm actually training now. I have an Ironman. I'm doing Ironman Florida in November. So COVID's been great in terms of running and biking, like a lot of time for that. I've done a lot of strength training and hopefully getting back into the pool soon. All the pool, like indoor pools are closed right now, which is really frustrating. But just focusing on my strength and uh, biking, like a lot of lo- many, many hours during COVID on my bike. When you finished cancer treatment and now you've become an Ironman, how did your perspective on life change? Because I started this podcast to speak about people's different career paths in life because I think it's sad how people go through life and they have their you know day-to-day job and some people really enjoy it, but there's a heck of a lot of people that just go through life with their head down and their shoulders shrugged and they're just... They're not really happy about things and you can't be happy all the time, but how has your perspective changed and what advice do you have for all of us to, to go after the things we want to achieve? Because we, we only have this one shot. Exactly. So the biggest lesson I ever learned was like, it's, it's not why me, it's why not you. So you have can't like, why not me? Why, why was I 
like, why am I special? Why, why did, you know, why would cancer skip me? But it, it happened to me. So why not you? And like, what's your story and write your own story and how, you know, you, you just have to be happy. I mean, I was in a, I was married to a great guy. I, I just wasn't happy. And I left, like you have to do stuff that makes you happy because you do only have one shot in terms of like being in a job you don't like there, you know, leave. Like I, I can't, you know, I, I, I can't, I, I can't imagine waking up every day and just doing something that I don't like. Yeah. So, you know, why not you? That's my, that's my advice. And was there anyone, whether you knew them personally or whether you just followed them online, that was really inspirational, whether it was going through cancer treatment or completing an Ironman, like who do you look up to? Who do you follow? Uh, good question. I follow um, a lot of Ironman athletes online. Yeah, um, They're just unbelievable. And the what they do, um, the work they put in is just phenomenal. I do follow Dave Goggin. I need to read more books. That's the goal I have for this year. You know, I think of my grandparents all the time and my grandfather was a runner for a little bit. And, you know, I just want to be a good example for my kids and you know, you go through something, but you, you could get out of it. And it's all about your attitude. Yeah, it really is all about about your attitude. What are the things as your kids grow up? You know, what are the things you really want to make sure you pass on to them? I just want them to be happy. Mm-hmm. And I want them to give back like I, you know, Princess Margaret was so wonderful. And everyone there is amazing. And so now I do what I can to help and and give my time to give back to the hospital. And I, you know, help raise money and I've gotten heavily involved on the foundation side. The hospital's funny. They know that I'll, I'll say no, I'll never say no. So if they want, they could use me for anything. And so they, my kids do see that and they know that I'm involved with the Northern pass and they know that I, I'm very active and they, Oh, like, what are you doing tomorrow morning, mom? Well, I have to ride an hour. I'll go, oh, of course you do. So like, they know they've just grown up with me, like being a complete psychopath. Um, but I hope they, they see that. And I've done a couple 5k runs with my oldest son and hopefully he does want to do sort of a triathlon or something with me down the road. Or next year I do want him to ride in the Northern pass. Um, Amazing. So, yeah. I just, you know, to the importance of being physical and, keeping, you know, being physical, physically active is very important and also giving back and just being good humans. Yeah. And the Northern Pass is coming up on August 7th. And, you know, that's one of the events I have the privilege of working on. And that's how I've really met you. And and Laura raised $25,000 last year. Um, you, You have an incredible goal you've set for this year. And, you know, the the impact you make by sharing your story inspires so many people. So I hope you know how how impactful you are and your actions are every day. Thank you. Um, it's actually through Princess Margaret. So they posted one of uh, they they did a LinkedIn post about me, and um, through that post alone, I met three women who were in uh, who are current. Well, they're still in active treatment right now. And we become like super close and there for each other. So, and I always like, 
I had a friend, Jessica, who went through breast cancer. She's now 10 years cancer free. So she, she went at, went through it before I did and she was unbelievable and she was my resource and she was my person. So I wanted to be Jessica for them. And, you know, we chat every single, like since last July, we've, we chat every single day by text just to kind of check in. And, and we going through cancer, you kind of learn things that, you know, take chapstick to chemo, your lips get dry, but people don't tell you that. Mm-hmm. And it's only if you've been through it, you would know. So we try and like be there for each other and then help out other people as well. And Laura, did you automatically want to be this, this kind of open with your story? I mean, you're an honorary vice chair of Northern Pass. We have four incredible business leaders and community leaders involved with that event. And Laura's one of them. You know, did you want to be out there fundraising and think you would be doing what you're doing now? Or did that take a while for you? So when I was first diagnosed, I said to my parents, please don't tell anyone because I don't know what I want to do. I don't know if I want to just do this under fly under the radar mm-hmm. or I don't know if I want to be open about it. But my mom told someone and then to make a long story short, like the Jewish women, like South African communities, very tight, very small and it, to make a long story short, like it got back to me that it, it it was out there. And so I had to control the story and I had to, I wanted to control it so people don't just assume things or make things up. And that's how I became sort of open. So she, I was so angry at the time, but then she did me a big favor. <laughs> there you go. Your mom did you a big favor and, and I'm sure it, it took a while, but even sharing your story on this, you know, there's going to be many people that are going to hear it and you're going to inspire and, and give people a lot of hope. And by the way, Northern Pass is August 7th and you can go to northernpass.ca and Laura Brown's pages there if you'd like to donate and support. Um, I guess the last few questions, Laura, coming back to sales for a moment, how did cancer change your approach with sales? I know you've got a great post online that people could find on your LinkedIn that that was even helpful to me. Um, it's just, it's, it's sort of hard to explain, but it's the care factor. So obviously I love my job. I care about it. I, I, you know, but it having cancer and coming back to work gave me a little bit more sass, I guess. Not in, I'm trying to not sound like an asshole. Um, <laughs> That's okay. Like I, it just gave me a little bit more. It's not that I don't care because I do care obviously, but gave me more confidence. It's like everything I've been through and now I'm selling sports. Like I'm selling sports. You want it or you don't. This is our price. If you don't want it, don't take it. And it's, uh, you know, you could say whatever you want and I'm not going to take it personally or get emotional. It's just, okay, on to the next. And so just that the whole life experience of like going through what I did and, you know, doing an Ironman and, and setting goals, it's, it kind of made sales a little bit easier. It's, mm-hmm. If you if you could try and understand that, like just the confidence to to just go and get what you want from people. Yeah, and it's it's really going about it and knowing that hey, if someone declines you or rejects you, it's it's not the end of the world. Don't take it personally, right? And that's hard for so many people. Yeah, for sure. And if they're not, they don't want your product, fine, like someone else will. And so it's go and find them. And then once you have them, treat them well and get them back next year. 
in terms of either your career or or life, you know, what's that impact or legacy that you want to leave now? So number one, again, it's why not you? Like Mm -hmm. things happen, but they're, you know, what's your story and how how does your story end and and what's your journey? I always tell when I speak to someone who's newly diagnosed and I'm like, okay, so you're going to go for chemo and all the nurses are going to tell you how bad you're going to feel, but maybe you won't and maybe you will, but maybe you won't. So write your own story and and how does it end for you? And, and like, what's your version of an Ironman? It doesn't have to be an actual, actual Ironman, but you know, at the end of this, how are you giving back? Like one of my sort of cancer friends from that group on LinkedIn, she now does, um, she's also big into fitness. So now mm-hmm. she runs fitness specifically for moms and people who have, who are going through treatment. So it's just it's like to find, find what you love and do what you love, but also, you know, give back. And that's also important to me. Uh, well, Laura, thanks so much for doing this. I, I hear, heard on the one podcast, you're a big Post Malone fan. And, and I got to tell you, you are a rock star and, and keep doing it, keep inspiring. And I can't wait to ride with you during Northern Pass. Uh, I can't wait either. Thank you so much. Okay, take care. We'll talk soon. There you have it. Thanks for checking out It's Not a Straight Line. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, follow on Spotify, and if you can, leave me a review, provide me some feedback, and I wish you all the best as you find your way in your career and life.